0: Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, a podcast created and funded by Cure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. I believe in a cure. This is one of the many catchphrases within the world of ocular melanoma. One of the most valuable things you can do for yourself as you join this club you never asked to be in is to lean in to social support. Acure Insight has partnered with top doctors, lifestyle experts, and patients willing to share their stories to bring you a two-day virtual seminar, which we will be hosting October 8th and 9th. So save the date and head to the link in the bio or below in the show notes to register. We hope you are ready to join us virtually, meet new omis, and learn about the latest research from the experts. Registration is now open! Welcome to A Cure Insight. My name is Danae Peterson and I am hosting um, interviews for our podcast. So if you're not familiar with this, we do have a podcast. It's called the I Believe Podcast and it's over on a Cure, um, It's over on acureinsight.org. You can link up with it there. You can also link up with it in the link in our bio. Um, we're on Apple Podcasts, so you can search us the I Believe Podcast and you can also... Obviously, you can listen live to the Facebook. Um, So when I have an interview with a patient or a doctor or somebody who is willing to talk with us as an audience, um, I will be pulling them into like this kind of a studio and we will go live together. We'll have a conversation and you guys are welcome to listen in. So this is Carrie, um, Carrie Younger Howard, and she is actually someone who lives not very far away from me and um, we need to meet up in person sometime soon, but she she reached out to me. I want to say, or maybe I reached out to her. I don't remember how it all worked out, but somehow we connected shortly after my diagnosis because a friend of mine saw that I had been diagnosed with ocular melanoma and she reached out to Carrie and asked if Carrie would connect with me. And so we've kind of like, you know, touch base off and on throughout different things. And I've asked her loads of questions, like as I was learning and getting getting familiar with everything that happens, you know, as you're newly diagnosed. So Carrie is here to share her story. And I just want to give you guys a brief um, kind of background for her. So she was diagnosed in, oh, let's see, your brachial therapy was in 2012. 2012. So when were you actually
1: diagnosed? I was actually diagnosed December of 2011. Okay. And then my brachytherapy was January 2012.
0: Okay. Perfect.
1: So December, 2011 is when she was originally
0: diagnosed. So my goodness, you've, you've been like a part of this community for a long while. Um, after having brachial therapy, and I guess I should say even leading up to her diagnosis, she had a lot of crazy things happening. So she's going to tell us about those and, um, how she has learned to advocate for herself and why she's such a big, um, just a big advocate in general for patients advocating for themselves. So, Um, Carrie's story takes a few twists and turns. Um, she went from, um, being diagnosed to then having the brachial therapy in January, 2012. And then a few years, a few years later, she was then, um, told that her tumor was growing again and she had to have her eye enucleated. So lots of things happened in the last 10 years, I guess. And, um, yeah, almost 10 years. That's crazy. So, I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to let Carrie tell tell her story and just kind of talk with us about how all of this happened and when she started noticing symptoms. Um, so let's just start there.
1: Okay. Danette, thank you so much for um, asking me to be a part of this to begin with, because as you said, I do like to advocate with people and be there for people to help answer any questions that they have, because my journey was actually very complicated and If I hadn't advocated for myself, I know I wouldn't be here today. About two years before my actual diagnosis, I started having some problems that I noticed in my vision, and it was actually a Costco optometrist that told me she saw something. So she sent me right away, immediately, within 24 hours, she had made a phone call for me to get into a retinal specialist. But when I got to that retinal specialist, they said, oh, there's really nothing there, nothing to worry about. I'm like, okay. So I went my merry little way and didn't think anything about it. But I started having some weird vision changes that were happening. I started seeing a lot of flashes of light that were like lightning happening. And I started having this cloud of gray in my left field of vision and it's hard to explain, like if you're looking straight on and off to this peripheral side, I would see this gray cloud coming into my vision that kept getting larger and darker. And at one point, it was black. And so for if I closed my right eye, I had half the vision in my left eye. And I kept going to doctors and they kept saying, oh, there's nothing wrong. And so I believed them. I went my merry little way and didn't worry about it until... My story is long, and so I don't want it to be all over the place, but actually a crazy thing happened. I totaled my husband's F-350 pickup truck by taking down the -the jack-in-the-box sign that had just, the new jack-in-the-box had just opened, and I didn't have depth perception. And I hit that sign and not only totaled the sign to a brand new facility, but I totaled totaled an F-350 with this accident. And at that point, my doctor who had been seeing me said, there's something wrong. Now we'll get you to a neurologist. And you guys all know probably how insurance works. To go every step, you have to see this doctor to to see that doctor to get your referral. So I went to this neurologist. And having been to so many doctors along the way, one thing I want to say as I'm saying this is always get your records always, no matter how simple the doctor visit is or how complicated. Because I went to this neurologist and it was a crazy visit that I won't even go into right now, other than to say that in the middle of my doctor visit, he got up and went to the dentist and left me on the table. So anyway, (laughs) Um, I got my records because it was a crazy visit and I was reading them. And in there, it said, patient is going blind from depression. And I read that and i went well wait a second that that doesn't even make sense to me and it made me very angry so i made a vis- a visit to go back to that doctor and when i get into the room it was a phys- physician's assistant and they said well you can't see the doctor he only sees you on the first visit he doesn't see anybody after that you see a physician's assistant and i said No, I need to see him because he needs to remove this from my record. I'm not going blind from depression. Something's wrong. They said, well, he's not going to see you. And this was the first step in me learning to advocate for myself very strongly without being rude or anything like that. But I said, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving until he sees me. And they said, well, I don't think he's going to do it. And I said, well, then I'll just stay here. I have a book to read. I'm good. I got more time than money. I'll stay. And those literally were the words that I was having this conversation with this person. So I sat in that room, and they had me stay there a good hour before he finally came in. And uh, we were talking, and he kind of was, you know, I have to say he was a bit arrogant with me, like I was wasting his time, like why was I there? And I said, I need this removed from my record. You put that I'm going blind from depression. And he said, well, that's my professional opinion. And I said, well, that can't be your professional opinion because you're a neurologist, not a psychologist. And I'll never forget, he did this whole reared back and took some deep breaths because he was a bit upset with me that I said that. And he stopped and he went, okay, you're right. I am not a psychologist. And he said, we we tend to get our information, do a few tests, and gather our information and come to a conclusion. And that was the conclusion I reached. And I said, well, that's not a good one. I need to see a neuro-ophthalmologist. And you're the person who has to give me that referral. And if you put that in my record, I'm never going to get to see who I need to see. So ultimately, I did go to a neuro-ophthalmologist. And like I said, at this point, I've been doing this almost two years. And... I got to the neuro-ophthalmologist, and they said, oh, you need to go back to that original retinal specialist you saw a year and a half ago. I'm like, okay. So I did. And they said, well, back to ground zero. And at this point, you can understand. You know what the medical is all about. It's frustrating. You're going to all these doctors. It's costing you all this money out of pocket. And you begin to get a little deflated. And I kind of felt that way, like another doctor visit. And then they said, Well, you need to go to Tucson, which is two hours away, for a second opinion. I'm like, okay, we'll go to Tucson. Here's my second learning to advocate for myself moment. And like I said, these two events changed the way I looked at my medical forever after. And it's something that I always tell people. Advocate for yourself no matter what. Because you know. I get to Tucson and they said, oh, we can't see you. We set you up for an appointment at the wrong office. You need to be on the other side of Tucson. You're going to have to come back another day. I said, I've been doing this for almost two years. I'm sorry. I didn't make this appointment. I'm not leaving. You need to get a doctor on the phone who will see me. And my mother was with me and she's very, very passive and very quiet. She's like, Carrie. And I said, mom, I'm not being mean. I'm not being rude, but I didn't make this appointment and there's something going wrong. And I've been doing this for almost two years. I'm not leaving. I didn't make this appointment. And that sounds like imagine, (laughs) I
0: I, I guess I could just imagine, you know, just just knowing you as a person, like how difficult that would have been for you initially, like just to have the courage to even say that. Um, So kudos to you for saying that and for like, not leaving
1: because it's hard we're we're so ingrained to like just listen and go okay okay I'll come back I'll do this but when you've been dealing with something for a long time you want answers and so here's one of my first miracles one of my first blessings that I had along the way the doctor that they made an appointment with said that he would do the equivalent of three office visits in one visit and by this time it's like four o'clock in the afternoon it's a late time of day for a doctor saying I'll see her And we went, and he did things on my eye. They did things, testing I had never heard of. And I still didn't really know what they were looking for. I kept thinking, oh, macular degeneration, something. And he does all these tests, and he's sitting there with all the pictures of my eye. And he turns around, and he said, it's malignant. You have cancer. And I almost fell off my chair at that moment. I was like, I... I, wasn't on my radar even to think cancer. That yeah, wasn't like it, one it of the things. It doesn't even
0: come up in your brain. Mm-mm. Like I totally get that because that was how I felt. I felt like, wait, what? <laughs> like
1: you're telling me I have cancer <laughs> in my eye. Hold up. Yeah. And you know, as a, a young mom as well with young children, for me, my first thought, I mean, I, I can remember like this tape going on in my head, brain, eye, cancer, brain I are close I have children I you know all those thoughts were just rattling in my brain like oh my gosh I'm gonna die I mean that was the first few thoughts that were going on in my brain was cancer I close oh I'm oh my gosh so it was a very frightening time because I had never heard of this cancer and um, I thankfully for me at that time didn't go home and google I'm glad I did not Uh, Fast forward at that point, my doctor immediately got me in for brachytherapy, and I was one of the first early ones that they were really doing it on here in Arizona. It turned out, from what I found out, I got that day to the one doctor in the Southwest that was dealing with ocular melanoma. It was my blessing had I not advocated so strongly. I don't know who I would have seen, but I got the one guy who had started piloting and doing the research on brachytherapy here in Arizona at... um, University of Arizona. And so I became a part of the study that he was doing. Yes, ma'am. So quick question. Your
0: doctor, uh, I... I think I know who it is, but can you just clarify for us here in Arizona, just for anyone who's listening, who might be in Arizona and is looking for someone, um, your doctor was Dr. Havid? Or- Dr.
1: Cameron Javid. Yes. Cameron yes, Javid. Javid. Okay. Yes. Cameron mm-hmm. Javid. At least that's okay. how he pronounces it. Yeah. I know. I'm,
0: I look at it and I'm like, I don't know how to say this. I probably shouldn't try. Um, and I saw, just like as a, another Arizona plug, I saw Dr. Curly. Here in Phoenix, and um, I have and I seen believe, her as well. Yeah, and you've seen her as well because going like you know, like you said Tucson is a few hours away from us, so it's a little yeah. much to drive every single year. Um, it is and multiple times a year, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, um, and at the time I was diagnosed, he was it in Arizona. He was the only mm-hmm. one. Doctor Curley was not here, and so um, I did. I turned myself over to him with his expertise and said, "I'll whatever it is." I need to do I'll do it and I had the therapy that January and everything was great now this is going to sound like a bad story and it really isn't it was a, a blessing in a sense because at my year visit follow-up he said have I told you to see an oncologist yet and I'm like wait okay I'm no like, Hold
0: on. we <laughs> took care of the cancer we and like, you did that last year <laughs> right?
1: that's kind of where I was at at that moment like wait you okay all right um, I immediately went home. And this was a January visit. I went home and I did Google at that point, And I happened to find the Ocular Melanoma Foundation. And they were having a conference in Washington, D.C. And I wrote them. And it was like a very quick, like three weeks out from this meeting. And I'm Asking, can I find out information? How can I get there? And another blessing and miracle—they paid my way to go to that conference that year, and it changed my life dramatically with this cancer because I was able to connect with other people just like me who had a rare orphan cancer with um, ultimately no cure. You know, at that time they were they were just getting into talking about research and um, scan protocols and castle testing and potential biopsies. They were in this early talks about things that you're now, I know, experiencing the benefit of some of that early stuff that they were even talking about. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to find out that I'm not the only person that other people have this, but there were only less than 50 ocular melanoma doctors at that time in the United States. So that was crazy to think that there were so few people who were even interested in dealing with this cancer because we all know how money and funding operates and rare cancers don't usually get the benefit of donations and funding because there's, I hate to say it, there's not money in it, basically, um, in terms of research. So I am so grateful for uh, groups like A Cure in Sight that are doing the things to spread awareness and educate and get donations so that we can find the answers that we need for the people that are being diagnosed now. Fast forward in my journey, sorry about that, little detour I took, 2016, we're supposed to have our scans uh, twice a year that look at our lungs and our liver and um, our blood work. And I had done that a few times, and then because I didn't have money and we didn't have insurance, and even with insurance, we had a $10,000 deductible. So it starts adding up when you have a lot of scans that cost a lot of money to find a way to do that. So I was avoiding it. I just stopped thinking about it at all. And that summer of 2016, July, my daughter was out of the country and she wrote me a letter and she said, mom, I had a dream that you died. Would you please go to the doctor? Because she knew I had not been, all my daughters knew that I have four daughters and they knew I was just avoiding even thinking about this. And at that moment I had a Uh, an epiphany moment and said, oh, well, I'm scaring my children, and I need to get to the doctor and find out. It's been too long. And again, I went to Dr. Javid, and he read me the Riot Act, which was very good. He said, I will never not see you if you don't have insurance. I don't want you to die. And it was a very heartfelt moment at that moment that I had a doctor in my corner who would see me no matter what and I had not taken advantage of that I had not written him or talked to him to say I need to see you and to hear him say that was wonderful and he turned around again and he said your tumor has grown significantly and it was genuinely an oh crap moment for me like oh my gosh now what and I immediately, this August is that anniversary of that where my eye was nucleated, and we all know that a nucleation of the eye doesn't decrease the risk of future metastasis, metastatic disease, but it, it does. It's such a hard word. I know, right? It's like, my tongue wants to roll over it. Um, But it does take, I call it the filthy beast. It took the filthy beast out of my head. And so, you know, if your eye offends thee, cut it out. Basically, it was doing that. So it's gone. That, in a nutshell, kind of is my story that led me here today. Because some key things I learned along the way were I tell people, advocate. We are so used to this white coat syndrome that if we see a doctor, they're the expert. We have to defer to them because they have the knowledge and expertise. But they're only good as the information that they have. And they are often very controlled by insurance protocols as well. Um, When I came back from the Ocular Melanoma Foundation conference, Dr. Javid told me to see an oncologist. And I went to one. And in the first five minutes of that meeting, this was an oncologist in Tucson. And he said, well, really, it's, and I'm not even paraphrasing. He said, it's not, it's a waste of my time to see you. You have a fatal cancer. If it metastasizes, you're going to die. Insurance is not going to pay for testing. So it's kind of a waste of my time and my money. And I have him on record saying that because I, at this point, I started taking a tape recorder so I could remember what doctors would tell me and take notes because we learned so much. We can't remember all of it. And I am so grateful for that conference I had gone to just the month before. And I was able to start dropping names like Dr. Sato and Dr. Harbor and different doctors that were doing research and talking about Keytruda and all the things that they were doing to buy people time. And I said to him, I know you can't save my life at this point if I have metastasis, but you can buy me time. And with time, I can be around long enough to have a cure. At this point, that's all I want, time and hope to be around. So we had a long talk, and he finally said, okay, all right, you've convinced me. I'll see you. And as I left, I kept walking out the door. I didn't make the appointment. And my mother and my husband said, wait, wait. He said he'd see you. I said, but he also told me within the first five minutes I was a waste of time, and I was going to die. I will not go to a doctor who has no hope to impart to me and doesn't believe that I'm worth his time or effort. So at this point in my ocular melanoma journey, here it is, 2021, I have reached out to different oncologists, and no one has seen me at this point. So at this point, I don't see an oncologist. I don't feel the need, only because I'd have to fight a battle (laughs) Mm -hmm. that I don't want to fight to to see them. So I go on with the information that's out there, and I'll cross that bridge if and when I need to cross it, then I'll, I'll do that. So at this point,
0: your eye has been enucleated. So like you said, the filthy beast is gone. And so because you don't have the actual cancer in your eye anymore, do you still follow with a, a medical, I mean, a, a, an ocular oncologist like Dr. Javid? Do they still monitor your other eye and make sure that everything looks good there? And I know that it's not like, it's not that it's common for it to spread from one eye to the other, but it's more just like, does he still see you, I guess? And is he- Yes, yes. Uh, managing your scan protocol for at least yearly scans or however often you see like have scans at this point
1: yes dr javid was very firm that got to watch the other eye like you said there's always a risk for a whole lot of things we only have we're monocular now at this point or i am i am too i just i mean this eye can't come back it's it's physically there but the side is gone yeah and so they definitely need to be watching our other eye it's the only one that we have left so he's very firm about that i had the blessing along the way my primary care a nurse practitioner is also a personal friend so along the way the minute years ago i told her an oncologist would not see me she said i'll i'll manage your care so any scans and anything I need, she has handled all along the way and has been in my in my court and in my has had my back. So I do get my scans uh, when I can, not as regularly as I should. Again, money is always <laughs> at the back of my brain and shouldn't be. But I do stay on top of them because I do only have one eye. And um, this is, it's been reiterated enough to me how serious this cancer really is. So yes, I do do that. Okay. So you have a really unique perspective that I want to
0: ask you about um, now that we've kind of like told your whole story. So you've had both brachial therapy and enucleation. And so a lot of the people I feel like in the community can only speak to one, maybe not a lot. And maybe it's just that I haven't connected with as many people who have had both. But I think that Like, just to kind of give some background, I I know that I can't be the only one who has had the thought. Um, I'm now a year past diagnosis. My tumor was large and it was treated with plaque therapy, but there have been times over this last year that I've kind of had that kind of emotional freak out, I think, of like, the tumor is still technically in my body. I don't want it here anymore. And so I've had that conversation, you know, with, with an enucleation specialist, I can't think of the name. But with an ocular surgeon as well as with my ocular oncologist, Dr. Curley, I've had those conversations of like, what if I decide that I want to have this eye because it's causing me pain, because it gives me too much anxiety? You know, what if what if that becomes something that I just want to have done? Not even not even if it's a this is medically necessary because my tumor came back. So I think you have a really unique perspective in the in the sense that you can speak to both of those experiences. And so I think for, for the sake of someone who maybe has already had plaque therapy and is then considering or being moved on in the treatment plan to enucleation, I guess I, my, my big question is what, what was the experience? Like how did the experience compare um, as far as maybe pain management or recovery time, things like that?
1: You know, I, I do know from talking to different people over the years everybody's eye cancer is different. You know this. Our tumors are different sizes. They're in different places. So our plaque placement, I know mine was painful. I think I remember reading that you said your was very painful. Yes, um, not fun. My tumor, actually, the reason I was losing vision was because it impacted my my optic nerve. And so um, that was scary to me, optic nerve to the brain, you know, thinking. And we know that those things don't really operate that way, but that's how our brain thinks. Right. And like you said, there's some anxiety wrapped up in all the decisions we make along the way if it will be the right one. I can say that my doctor, when um, I was first given options with brachytherapy, he said, you know, our goal is to save the eye. So my vanity was like, yeah, save the eye. I want my two eyes, you know. My vanity. I love this because this is exactly what I was thinking. Right? the man, I, I'm not going to lie. Um, I don't want to digress in your comment, but I will say this one thing. In the middle of my therapy, I believe it was the removal portion, I woke up in the middle of that surgery.
0: Oh, my goodness. And you're
1: laying down like this, right? And I could hear – he's a teaching doctor in the University of Tucson, so he. I already knew he'd have other people there that he was teaching. And I wake up to hear him saying, okay, now we're cutting the muscles, we're severing these muscles, and he starts talking. And I said, um, excuse me, um, I don't want to interrupt. They all got silent. There was a <laughs> lot of people in the room. <laughs> I'm sure I freaked them out a little bit. The and I said, um, can I do that? <laughs> Not supposed to do that. I said, um, I know this is really a lot of vanity. I know it. I understand. But am I going to look like a chameleon with one eye looking one way and one <laughs> eye looking the other? <laughs> he says, very sternly. And you have to know Dr. Javid. Dr. Javid is like 6'4", blue-eyed, very handsome man, very good-looking man. We'll say that. My little digression there. So he says, we are not doing this to save your looks. We are doing this to save your life. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. I just I'm I know I'm vain, but am I gonna I repeated the same thing. Am I gonna look like a chameleon? And he again very sternly, we are doing this to save your life. We are not doing this to save your looks. And that was it. Everything went dark. I don't remember anything after that. But, what a crazy um, memory. <laughs> It is a crazy to think that I even woke up and had that memory. So my vanity was very much in my brain at that moment. And you can see I'm very vain. I, I hate to admit it. Well, um, your eye patches are adorable. So I love it. Thank you. Uh, you have to, I've learned along the way for myself, I have to make peace with the filthy beast and I have to make peace with it in every aspect of my life. And so what I tell people who are looking at, do I keep my eye? Do I do this? I think you've probably researched and know that there's different types of enucleation. There's just the removal of the eye or there's, what is it? I can't remember the other one, not evisceration, but basically it takes all the tissue and everything out and then you get a prosthetic that is big and connected. So there are lots of options and what I tell people is you have to do what you're comfortable with. I agree, like you, there's pain either way. It's weird to say that my socket still hurts. I'll still get flashes of pain. The gross stuff, I don't like that it gets goopy, mucusy. I don't like that. I wear a patch because it's not pretty. But on the other hand, I had an eye that I had a tumor grow back. And I know that your tumor is quite large. So I could see that you would have those concerns and that worry of, um, and so would other people. What do I do? Do I keep this eye? It wasn't even a a thought for me at the time. I didn't even realize, I just kept going with the radiation is killing my tumor, it's dormant, dormant and stable. The only thing I can say directly on that is it doesn't necessarily change our outcome one way or the other, does that make sense?
0: And that is, that's what, that's kind of what Dr. Curley told me when I asked her that question. She said, you know, ultimately, yes, you could choose to have it enucleated, whether that's your step one um, and your initial choice of treatment, or whether that becomes something that's necessary later, or just something that you decide that you want to do because you don't like the stress of having the tumor in your body still. But ultimately she's like, it doesn't, it doesn't change your outcome and and ultimately we don't know your outcome so it's it's just like it's one of those sucky answers like of the whole we have this unknown situation and we don't right. get to do anything about it other than just and write it out like we're stuck in the middle of the unknown and we just have and to And it's scary keep going. all of that
1: when we talk about scanxiety and um I think we have all of us who've been through this have a bit of PTSD about it because you have that whole I have cancer moment that you have, that you will live that over and over and over again. You know, if I stop and think about it when I hear those words, you know, the, that feeling I had comes back very strongly, so I avoid thinking about it. Every time I go for a scan, um, first of all, I have to be medicated for that MRI. I did not know I was claustrophobic till I had my very first MRI over my brain and Flip. Oh, terrible, terrible. So I have to have some Valium to go in and do that. I don't like those. And I get anxiety just thinking about the MRI before I even have to think about, do I want the answers? Do I, you know, I never had the option of a biopsy to no risk. And I'm glad, honestly, for me, I'm glad I didn't because I'd be dwelling on that way too much for myself. Yeah, I do. I mean, that is, it's kind of the
0: the blessing and the curse of the biopsy, right? Because I have my biopsy and I know the information, but at the same time, it's, it can be very difficult not to let that information take over my life and take over, take over kind of how I'm able to function. So, I mean, you know, I'm in therapy to work on that <laughs> disclaimer, but um, yeah, it, I mean, really, I think Dr. Curley told me when I was, when I was, deciding the biopsy or no biopsy. She said, for the size of your tumor, I would estimate that you're a class two, but I can't guarantee that without a biopsy. And the biopsy at a, at a minimum is going to make sure that insurance will cover your scans. And, you know, because like at this point now, 10 years down the road, um, in the ocular melanoma field, they have research to back it up. They can then submit to insurance. And, and I know people still have insurance issues and there's still so many different things that happen in the medical field that really, we would wish didn't happen. And they, I think they shouldn't happen, but they do. And they're unfortunate and difficult for people to manage financially. Um, but when it is possible, I feel like all the chances we can get, right. All the chances we can get for insurance to do their job and for us to get the protocols, the scan protocol taken care of that we need, that's, that's priority. Um, and, and for, for me, that was, that was kind of a, a no brainer decision after that, even though, Even though the result is that now I live with this every three months, I have scanxiety and I freak out a little bit and I start to dwell a little bit more on the what ifs, right? Those come up more frequently. My scans are actually in like three weeks. So I'm like, okay, (sighs) like I can, I can do this. And so but it's, it's, it's a learning process. And I think that whether you have scans every three months or once a year, twice a year, whatever your scan protocol looks like, you have to learn how to manage it for yourself. Because like you said, it is, it is a very post-traumatic stress kind of an experience. And so revisiting that, and then just kind of reminding your body and reminding your brain, like I've done this before. (laughs) I can do it again. I may not like it, but like I've done this before. And each time so far I've come out yeah. of it breathing. Right. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, that's just something that helps me, but you've had scans for a lot of years. Obviously your scans have been kind of up and down and different things. But, um, as far as just navigating that, what do you find helps you navigate this, you know, anxiety that we talk about in the cancer world? Cause I feel like so many people struggle with that and they just kind of get stuck and it's, and it's,
1: I feel like it just helps to yeah. humanize it, right? Yeah. Do you mean in terms of my own personal, how I deal with um, when those are coming up or? Yes.
0: So like when you know your scans are coming up, they're, they're scheduled, you have a certain date. Obviously, you mentioned that you, um, for some of the scans, well, I, I don't know if it's for all of them or for some, but for at least the brain MRI, you have had medication to help with with managing yes. anxiety physically.
1: Mm-hmm. I do the same thing with the liver one. I have, I, they put me enough mm-hmm. in that thing for the liver that I have some, um, they prescribe me some uh, Valium, uh, a pill the night before, a pill two hours before, and a pill right before I go in. And it makes me relax. It doesn't put me to sleep, but it takes that anxiety away because I honestly can't get in that machine. I can't do it without it. So I have... To, yeah no
0: even just listening to you talk about oh, it, it you can hear like it, it. Gives yeah a lot of I immediately
1: ah, yes it immediately triggers something in me and so I've learned that okay I'll somebody will take me to those exams and those um, scans and I'm gonna go ahead and have what I need to make it possible for me to do that and be comfortable with it yeah for sure
0: so you bring someone whenever possible, you bring someone mm-hmm. to drive and you I to think, and from this. Um, in
1: terms of that, what I've learned along the way, and every appointment you go to, have somebody go with you no matter what. Have somebody take notes or have somebody record on their phone or whatever. Document everything along the way. We don't remember what is said to us and somebody else hearing it. Is good for us, but we also need that moral support of somebody there with us. And I'll be honest with you, yeah, I sure. have not. Um, I have stuck to my grounds with doctors over COVID who said another person couldn't be there. I've stood my ground and been successful to say this needs to happen. Both um, advocating for myself and my own daughters on stuff that you have a you have to have a doctor who's going to listen to you, and if that's what you need, then. That's what you need. So, um, like I said, yeah, my key thing sure. is I adv- I stress for people, advocate no matter what. Um, back to what we were talking about on the enucleation, I don't know for a lot of people, um, insurance didn't, for me, cover an eye. They said it was a cosmetic issue. So I don't have an eye, a prosthetic eye, for that reason. Uh, it's like the cost of a small car. So um, I, I opted not to do it. And that's why I patch, I say I patch proudly, um, to deal with it. And in terms of scans and living this life along the way, aside from a nuclear, I mean, um, advocating, you have to have humor. Uh, we have lived our lives finding humor in, in the most Bizarre circumstances. Can I share something really briefly? You absolutely can. My name is um, obviously Carrie Younger Howard. The last name is Younger Howard. And 30 years ago, when I was teaching in Albuquerque, mostly Hispanic students didn't. The the saying the whole Younger Howard was ha- hard. So I became Mrs. YoHo which was great fun if you're a Spanish speaker to say yoho. So my students, I would laugh with them and say, okay, if I'm walking the hallway and you're yelling Yo-Ho, I'm not going to answer to you. But if you put missus Yoho behind it, I'm perfectly fine. So we have been the Yo-Ho's as a family for 31 years, 30 years, I'm sorry. And then out of the clear blue, I always say that a higher power or the universe, cosmic, whatever, has a sense of humor. Because lo and behold, one day I end up wearing an eye patch, yo-ho, all the pirate jokes that came from that, right? Well. <laughs> I'm sadly going to say I did not <laughs> get the joke at 1st I was ho-ho. like, yo-ho, yo-ho. I'm trying to well, connect it. Well, it gets even it. better I, because I years ago, my husband became a below-the-knee amputee. So he has the peg leg. I have the eye patch and wear the yo-hos. So you can't have a more cosmic joke than oh that gosh. actually. So we laugh about that all the time. Finding humor. Another thing that was hilariously funny, when I first went to that ocular melanoma conference in Washington, DC, they had to stay at a motel and then they walked us over to this building. And there we all are, you know, we can all relate to each other. Most of us were monocular and we had, you know, this depth perception is terrible, terrible. So we walk into this building and look down the stairs, because we're going to be in the basement. And they were dark brown wood laminate. You couldn't see, it looked like a black slide sliding to the ground. And we all laugh. I kid you not, we're holding on to each other and we're taking gentle steps to sort of feel where the next step is and to feel with our foot where the next step is. It was hilarious. So we're laughing about that, right? Totally a group of this. women and men <laughs> all laughing going, who did, th- who picked this place? We walk around the corner in this basement for the room we're going to be in. And it was glass walls. And we all die. We're like, okay. Sir- beyond a joke walls you can't even see somebody's going to walk in to those walls one of us is going to do it so we had a talk yeah. where I was really emotional listening to some really emotional talks and I get up to leave the room and there's a man standing holding the door open and I run over and I just slammed right in to the glass wall in front of all these people and the funniest part of it was yeah there was a little bit of laughter but I was in a room of people who got it who understood that oh that could have been me walking into that glass wall, you know? So like, you have to find moments to laugh with no depth perception. I fall all the time. I walk into walls. I've had serious falls. I have to laugh. Um, yeah. I,
0: I hit a pillar the other day at the <laughs> store and I was like, okay. And my son was with me and he's like, mom, are you okay? And he's like seven. And he's like, are you okay? You've never done this before. Yeah. And I'm like, it yeah. hit the
1: wall. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that kind of hurt. I've taken okay. off three
1: window, uh, three mirrors off the side of cars, so, hitting the pole. Did yeah, that, right?
0: Did, did that um, once. And actually, I don't even think I get to claim cancer card on that one because I'm pretty sure I did it before I was diagnosed. But it could have been because of my vision already yeah, deteriorating. Yeah, that's what happened
1: with me with that jack-in-the-box sign is I had deteriorated vision yeah. and had no depth perception and just hit that. So, um funny stuff if we're not laughing at ourselves you know of course we don't want to and we don't you know, when I'm out and about with an eye patch, there are people who are kind. There are people who laugh and mock. There are people who point fingers. There are people who don't care at all. I love children. They always have questions, and we make it funny, and I love them, and it gives me an opportunity to educate. So when people do ask me about my eye patch, I'm able to say it's eye cancer. It's ocular melanoma, so it's a, have made it a teaching moment in my life. I always tell people to... Um, Find things that make you like gut belly laugh, watching reruns, finding a YouTube, something that makes you find laughter in everything that you do, because there's a lot we could cry about. Honestly, when I get online and friends that I've known are gone, it, it, the filthy beast rears its head and I hate it. You know, I call it a thief of hearts and lives and sight, not just sight, because it really can do that. Um. And I keep a miracle journal, not just a gratitude journal, but a miracle because along the way, little things that happen to us are little miracles that kind of connect us and um, give us more of a firm foundation and make this journey that we're on a little bit easier to navigate because it, it's new. Everybody we're dealing with is on a different path, and yet we're on the same one. Does that make sense? We're all on this same ocular melanoma journey, but all of our paths are different, but we all connect, and um, connecting with all the groups that are online with ocular melanoma has been crucial for me. I can come in and out at will and be private as much as I want or as public as much as I want, Um, and I allow people to reach out to me so I can talk to them and talk them off a ledge because... I feel like I'm an easy person to vent to instead of our own family and our own friends. Sometimes they hear it too much or they don't know how to fix it. We just need somebody we can rant at and not worry. And sometimes, yeah,
0: sometimes you need someone who understands, like who gets where you're coming from, who has been there on some level or another. And I can definitely say, you know, as far as just our interactions, that you've been that for me. So thank you. Um, Thank you for being willing to be that kind of an, an advocate and a mentor and a support. Um, I liked what you said about, you know, seek the peer support, seek the community, but also do it. I think it was you who told me, you know, you don't have to stay in the Facebook group. If the Facebook group that you're in is supportive for one month and then the next month it's not, you can leave it and then you can rejoin it. You don't have to subscribe to notifications you don't have to dive into all of this all the time because you can't, yeah. you have and to It can live get life. painful sometimes and you have yeah, you to hear, you know, find the joy and watching other people and it, yeah, struggle. Yeah. Can get very um, it can get very painful. It can get very painful. It can get very absorbing, you know, to feel like you're, you're really wrapped up in that. So um, I like that you said that, that you, to seek the community, seek the support, but be okay and be, be cognizant of what you need. And, and I think that, that's kind of a learning process. Um, it really is something that you have to learn throughout this journey. Like I'm a year in and I'm still kind of figuring out when is a good time for me to visit the Facebook group. When is not (laughs) and, and mentally and emotionally, what can I handle and what can I not? Um, and I just wanted to touch on just, just to kind of recap before we wrap it up. Carrie's main points in her whole story is you have to advocate for yourself. And if you aren't able to advocate for yourself in the moment, then you need a person with you and that you should, you should be pushing to have a person to help advocate for you at these appointments, whether they're the very beginning appointments or far down the road. Um, This is the kind of thing we, we deserve as patients. We deserve to have someone with us and we deserve to have, like you said, doctors in our corner who understand this and who have our backs. Um, So I love that you said that. And, just really focusing on finding the humor, finding the joy. And I loved what you said about a miracle journal, keeping a miracle journal where you keep track of the little blessings and the little miracles along the way in your story. Um, I, I could see this being something you, you would even keep track of. Like if somebody else has a miracle and you're like, I just want to recognize that this person wasn't supposed to have this happen and now they're okay. And that's a miracle. Any of those little things, anything that you learn can go in that miracle journal. And I, I think it's, like you said, it's different than a gratitude journal because it's very specific to circumstances. And then just seeking that peer support. Carrie went to an event. Um, I'm not sure if you've been, have you been to more than um, one them. I went
1: to a second one and wasn't able to go after that. And then there were some things that were going to happen right around COVID and missed out on those does. Obviously. Yes.
0: So those events I know right now, at least for a cure insight, our event is going to be virtual in October, um, more to come on that soon, but just know that like these events are there and you can connect with people across the Facebook page through the Instagram page. You can connect with people, um, in different Facebook groups and you would be surprised like how many people I think are told initially when they're first diagnosed, like that. That um, maybe not how many people, but I, I know of at least a couple people who were told when they were first diagnosed that there was nobody else with this cancer and that they were never going to find anyone else and that it's super rare, which it is, but at the same time, it's not, it's, it's not impossible to find people close by. Obviously you and I live in the same, you know, within the same city bounds and that I think is rare. Um, but you know, obviously we've been diagnosed 10 years apart almost or nine years apart, but those people exist. And meeting up with them in person, it gives you it gives you the kind of support that you just can't get. Um, as much as we love family and friends, we love that they're so supportive, they, they don't have the same perspective. So it does help to have this kind of support from people who get it. Um, so I love those things. Um, just as we wrap it up, is there anything else that you feel like really just driven to share?
1: Well, really fast, I was going to say in terms of the states that people live in, Like when I was first diagnosed, I didn't know anybody in this state. And as time has come on, more and more people have been found. And we've had a couple of meet, do you call it a meet and greet? I don't know what you call it. Um, I'd like to have more of those where you connect, like you said, with people who um, are on this same path that you're on. Um, And they're out there. They weren't. When I was diagnosed, I kind of felt very isolated and alone. I don't know. There was something that you said, and I didn't write it down. I was going to comment on it. I apologize. Um,
0: That's okay. It'll come. Oh, to I know you what in it like was. Somebody had and... um,
1: Debbie Sullivan said because of COVID, I've done the last year by myself. My husband sits outside, and I wanted to reiterate for Debbie that advocate hard for that. I've been able to um, get past that directive with every doctor that I've seen.
0: Yeah, and I will say for me, um, I've had kind of the same experience where I, for the different testing, you know, when I get dilated, when they're doing um, some of the photosensitive testing, some of those things that are back in procedure rooms, um, this is just at my ocular oncologist, but for those different procedural testing that I have every three months right now to just monitor the, the decrease in size of my tumor my husband or my mom has been able to wait in the waiting room until I go see the doctor. And then once I go see the doctor, then I'm able to pull them back or the doctor will pull them back and have them come and sit in the room with me when the doctor goes over, okay, this is what we found. This is what we're seeing. So it is possible. But like, like we, like we're both saying, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to say, I want this and I'm not accepting anything else. And if they're not willing to give that, I mean, my two cents, find a different I'm doctor. I'm there with you. you.
1: I call it the white coat syndrome that we think that the expert really has all the answers and we have to get past that, that it's okay for us to say, if I would not advocated for myself along the way, I know I'd be dead today. That I, if I had not stuck to my guns, if I had not questioned along the way that something wasn't right, go with your gut. You know you, you know what you need. And when you're sitting in these doctor's offices and you feel like you need a husband, a spouse, a friend, you have a right to that. I like that Danette said that it's our right to have what we need medically. And our support system is medically necessary. As much as people have support dogs, I need support people. I love that. That's a really good way to put it. Fight for what you need for yourself because we don't get really much second chances on this one. So fight for what you need.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I love this. So I know I told you before we started that I was going to ask you for um, you to share your favorite song with the audience and just kind of let us know. It doesn't have to be the top one, but maybe the top one for today or the top one for this month in light of um, where you're at in your journey. I think you said you're coming up on your anniversary of your enucleation like I'm sure that there's got to be music that kind of comes to mind so
1: anything that you to I share, will really show you one of the things that I found recently if you can find this song it's called far over the misty mountain gold and it's by um his name is Jeff G-E-O-F-F Castellucci Castellucci and he, get the YouTube video of that song and watch it. You will see four very rugged men singing this song. And he goes to the deepest, his Barrett, his bass is off the range of the piano. If you have the piano at the lowest note, he can go another full range down on his bass. Yes, you have to hear the song. But That's the four amazing. men singing, it's all him. He's doing, you have to hear this oh, song. Oh, wow. he's doing doing all all the parts. That's cool. Okay. Well,
0: I will plan on finding that and I'll ask you to send me the YouTube link if you don't mind when we're done. And I will link that up below the Facebook video. And then once we get the podcast up and rolling, I will link it in the show notes as well so that people can find that because that sounds like a really good song. I'm a big believer in music, in being helpful in just navigating this emotionally and also just supporting us. And I, I, to be honest, I really believe music that music is healing. Is healing. Absolutely. So I will I will take all of the music I can get and I will happily spread it with the rest of you. So okay. Well, Carrie, I am so glad that we could talk today. We do need to get together and let's hang out. Let's get, you know, get together for brunch or um I'd love that. Meet it's up a pleasure talking to you. And um, yes, and we will totally do that. So if you guys have any questions, um feel free to drop them in the Facebook comments thread on the Facebook I will be trying to figure out how to get this over to Instagram and then once we get it edited and uploaded for the podcast we will add it over into the podcast library um, but for now I just want to say hi listening. Jerry to who is my nephew live.
1: and Anthony and Dean love you guys thank you so I saw their names in there I am Beverly yes thank yeah. you so much so. thank no, you totally It's been a pleasure
0: um, but thank you again for joining us if you guys have any questions, seriously, don't hesitate to reach out. You can talk to me. Um, you can message Carrie directly. I'm sure you could find her on social media. I'm trying to think. What else? Make sure you're following us on Instagram. That's where I'm posting updates and I'm posting some fun content, things that you guys might find helpful. Uh, and just be sharing this. Share this page. If you find someone who's newly diagnosed in your community, share this page. Share the nonprofit on your birthday, on Facebook, ask for donations. Like we need these kinds of donations. And that's the ripple effect of you be having a personal story and sharing that with the world oh, is huge. Get dilated. And that is where- get oh, dilated. Yes. Oh my goodness. We can't, yep. we can't leave that out. That has to it. be a part of it. Make sure to get dilated for sure by your doctor, by your retina specialist every time. Like dilation is key. So, all right. Well, thank you again for joining
1: us. And we will see you guys next time. Take care.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.